Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and to an episode that I've really been looking forward to bringing you for quite a while. My guest today is Mr. Lambus Inglazos, and Lambus, you would probably all know, is famous for the work he did discovering the missing diggers of Fromel, and uh, he joins me now uh, in Melbourne. Lambus, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hello, Matt. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this, mate. We've spent, over many years, we've discussed Fromel and the, the importance of what went on there, and I'm talking, of course, for people who don't know about the mass grave that was discovered at Pheasant Wood with about 250 Australian bodies in it who were killed during that action in Fromel in July 1916. Take us back. How did you get involved? Because you're not an academic historian, you're not an archaeologist. How did you start getting an inkling that something was amiss at Fromel? I'm a retired art teacher with an interest in history and military history, and uh, through our association through the Friends of the 15th Brigade, uh, I got to meet survivors of the Battle of Fromel, the 19th of July men, as they were called, and uh, it was just wonderful to share time with them, uh, not just for the, the providence that they could provide, but uh, it, was, it was my absolute privilege to share their company and their companionship. So um, I've had a long interest in military history, and with the Battle of Fromel, uh we became quite associated with. Uh, oh well. I knew the men. I asked the questions, and the figures didn't add up. Nineteenth of July, nineteen sixteen, the very first time Australians going to battle on the Western Front. One night's battle, five thousand five hundred thirty-three casualties, uh, two thousand killed. Uh, so uh, it was a disastrous battle. And I just want to learn more about that particular battle, having met the survivors of it. And uh, as an association, we uh, we hold a commemorative service every year to the Fifteenth uh, Brigade, but also to uh, commemorate the Battle of Fromel. So, having done the research into that, uh, I went there in two thousand. All of this Fromel momentum is due to author, historian, founder of the Friends of the Fifteenth Brigade, and friend Robin Caulfield. Uh, he has left us with a wonderful legacy through his research, his books and his friendship. He wrote the initial book on the Battle of Fromel in 2000, um, Don't Forget Me, Cobber, and he happened to choose a particular soldier to profile, Jack Bowden of the 59th Battalion, and in the end it was his file, the only one in all 1,332 missing from that one night's battle that mentioned a place called Pheasant Wood. Before we get into that, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the battle itself, because yeah. there is something about Fromel, isn't there? This is an action that, in the in the horrors of the First World War, really stands out. As you say, Australia's first action. I've always found, from the earliest days that I was researching the Western Front and walking the ground, there's something special about Fromel, isn't there? So it's fitting that that we had this great discovery of all these missing Australians at that site. How, you sound like you were always interested in the Battle of Fromel long before you got into this research. What is it about that battle, do you think? I hadn't heard... It was a little-known battle. The first I read of it was in Charlton's book, uh, Posier, as a couple of paragraphs, so I tried to learn as much as I could about that particular battle. And as I said, I met uh, Tom Brain and other survivors and Bill Boyce, the wonderful Bill Boyce. But uh, the first battle, an absolute disaster. Um, had we not attacked, because the whole premise was, was to try and hold German troops in place there so they couldn't go down to the Somme where a major battle had already begun and where uh, Australians would attack at Potier on the 23rd of July. So had we not attacked, it would have been a complete success because the Germans would have waited and waited for something to happen. So uh, in that sense, uh, it was 
It was a very hasty battle. Brigadier General Pompey Elliott, he tried his best to get the battle at least postponed because we weren't ready. The Germans were there for a year and a half. We'd been there for one week. The battle was meant to happen on the 17th of July, but because it rained, they postponed the battle. But it was uh, very badly planned, hasty, and met with disastrous results. And uh, General Hacking, in charge of the battle, Butcher Hacking, as his own soldiers called him, was in charge of the battle. He dropped the battle lines. So... um, as a plan, hasty and futile with absolutely disastrous results. So you're a member of the association. You you talked about Robin Caulfield's wonderful book, Don't Forget Me, Cobber, which yeah. is on the table in front of yeah. us. And in fact, I read as a probably a 19-year-old and was one of the things that got me most interested in this this passion for walking the battlefields. What was the journey then from from reading that book? I, I think the important thing about that book is it lists all the casualties, doesn't it, yeah. in, the, in the book. Um, so he'd done the research into one specific soldier. And what, uh, what, where did that lead? Well... He he tried to get the book published and the publisher said uh, you can lose some pages by getting rid of the honour roll at the back. So Robin just turned around and, and left. But, I mean, <laughs> it's all about the soldiers. We tell a soldier's story and the honour roll in the back of his book uh, lists the soldiers who were killed during that one night's battle. And um, there are many, many stories to be told there. But for his book, he chose Jack Bowden of the 59th Battalion to research uh, and in the end, it was Jack Bowden's file, the only one in all 1,332 Red Cross wounding and missing files, which I read through, that mentioned a place called Pheasant Wood. I, what, yeah. What, what did you think that meant when you saw it? So give, give us a little yeah. bit of context. We'll talk about what actually happened. But yeah. what, what did you think at that time? You've got Bowden's file. You see a mention of a place called Pheasant Wood. What, did, what alarm bells rang yeah. in your head? Well, I went to Pheasant uh, to Fromelli in 2002, and I went there with the question, you know, where are the unaccounted for missing? From the Battle of so, that, so that was your question from yeah. the start, was there are guys missing here that yeah. we can't account for? And uh, there was that reference uh, to a place called Pheasant Wood. None of us knew where or what a Pheasant Wood was. But uh, when I got back, uh, sent away uh, for aerial photographs of the ground behind the German line, looking for anomalies in the ground, and a series of images began to emerge for us uh, pre- and post-battle, and we thought they were very strong and compelling. Uh, tell, us, tell us about those images, what you saw yeah. in the aerial photos, because this was crucial, wasn't it? Yeah, in the, that was in the a story. critical part. Yeah. Uh, what did you see in the aerial photos? Well, we found a wood uh, being uh, with a, a light rail cutting through it because there was a photograph of bodies on a light rail. And um, before that wood, 10 days before the battle, no digging at all. Then 10 days after the battle, clear evidence of sustained earthwork. The ground had been dug. And, um, so you could see that from the oh, yeah, photos. It's quite evident. And the Germans didn't care who saw it. Clearly they didn't care. No attempt at all to camouflage it. So uh, we proposed that the ground before this particular wood, pheasant wood, was of, of interest. Now, we had to apply a lot of political and press pressure because they said, go away, you amateur schmucks. You don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. But, I mean, we couldn't have missed a site that big after the war, but we persisted with it. So your, your theory at this stage was yep. that which turned out to be true, was that the Germans, after the battle, the, the, the critical part was that the Australians had broken into the German lines. Um, for people who don't know the specifics of the Battle of Fromel, um, the, Germ- uh, the Australians had successfully broken into the German lines but then been repulsed. And so in that situation, a lot of dead bodies remained behind yeah. in the German trenches. When the Germans reoccupied their trenches, they yeah. had a lot of enemy dead to deal with, and these were the Australians, and so they created burial pits yeah. to dispose of those Australians. So you, you had that theory from... From the earliest yeah, days? because there, there were the missing and the unaccounted for missing. That is, those who got into and beyond the German line were killed, uh, gathered by them and buried somewhere behind their line. So we went looking for aerial evidence of anomalies behind the line. And as I said, those images began to emerge for us uh, before the wood, which ended up being pheasant wood. Well, I've seen, I've seen those pictures and it's quite clear, isn't it? There, yeah. there are clear you know, half a dozen big pits that have yeah. been dug and as you say no effort to camouflage them or hide them so they're not going to be None whatsoever. they're not going to be artillery positions or mortars or anything there no. um, interesting you say that because uh, after we applied political and press pressure because they said they, you know go away eventually we were invited to camp to make our case to an expert panel of historians and military people the gatekeepers the owners of history and uh, John Fielding Ward Selby and I made our case to this expert panel. Opinions varied, but some of them said they were gun pits. You know, we were completely wrong about this proposition. And um, I think high officials were badly advised because we were told right through the process, listen, there's nothing here, you know, all the missing are accounted for. But uh, having been to Fromel and uh, seen and travelled to those cemeteries, there was that figure of unaccounted for, that is, the, those that the Germans buried. Because what they did, 
They took the ID discs off the bodies. Anything was not of any, any, of any military value, cigarette cases, watches and the like. They bagged them and through the Red Cross they sent them back to Australia. Which is a remarkable it's incredible, thing to do. Isn't it? It's incredible. It's absolutely thank, astounding. Thank God we were fighting. You know, if this had oh. to happen, thank God it was against the Germans, who are just meticulous in their record keeping, including of enemy dead. It's unbelievable. There's a certain we would have done the same in, in return. There's a certain irony in all of that because uh, there are burials behind our lines, and we've buried them and we've lost them. The VC corner honour roll is a flawed document. But, I mean, the process was that that's what they did. In the end, it gave us the names of the soldiers that they had buried. And in the case of Jack Bowden, the only one where they'd buried them. Absolute chance, serendipity. Just coming back to that point, you're suggesting that the Germans did a better job of burying our dead than we did, that we didn't keep as good a records as we should have of burials at Frommel. There are many battles of Frommel, and uh, part of it is trying to get acknowledgement for those who were killed and buried. There are soldiers behind our line that we buried and we lost. Uh, Downey, D-O-W... NIE of the 29th Battalion. He was buried in a grave with three other sergeants and they remain lost. Their names are on the honour roll. We buried them, we lost them. Captain Arblaster did remarkable work, did a soldier's work that night and was uh, badly wounded, died of wounds, taken back to a German hospital and he now has a headstone in Douai Cemetery. So, you know, the Germans did take very good care of our soldiers. They had to clear their line for health reasons alone, they had to clear their line, but they prepared the pits buried the soldiers, documented their burials. In the end, there were 196 documented German burials and Jax was the only one that said where they were. What year was it that you presented your case to the panel? Uh, we made our case in 2005 to the expert panel. Opinions did vary. Uh, we went away to try and disprove our own case. We never ever could. You know, we went to the Grave Registration Unit records, gave them the map reference for Pheasant Wood, uh, eventually got the reply that there was a nil return for that site. So we were trying to, you know, do be as thorough as we possibly could. But everything suggested that that ground was a burial ground, nothing else. And late in 2006, Dr Lothar Salp in the Munich archives uh, found a German document, the smoking gun document, if you will, uh, the pivotal document dated two days after the battle in which it said you will dig before Pheasant Wood for 400. So there was no more evasive smoke. The ground had been used for burial purposes. So our circumstantial case was getting stronger and stronger. 60 Minutes did a story on it in 2006. So people were starting to ask, why don't you go and dig? Well, this resistance, uh, I understand from an official perspective, there was resistance from it. And the the reason for that is this policy that we, unlike the Americans, for example, Mm. we don't look for our war dead. If if a farmer is ploughing his field in France and uncovers a grave and it's got an Australian soldier in it, we will then do what we can but yeah. we don't actively go out and look for war dead no. was that was that attitude impeding what you were trying to do at Fromel? Well there was a lot of active discouragement from high officials uh, who uh, denied the possibility that there was a burial ground but we persisted when we got that result um, bodies are found on the western front and then the role of Commonwealth war graves is indeed a reactive one in as much as they will recover a body and bury it. They do excellent work. Uh, but, um, you know, we were just an amateur group trying to push a proposition and in the belief that you should look for and recover your war dead. It goes back to the original question, the moral dilemma. Do you do this sort of work? I believe you do. And we think it can't be a financial or a logistical inconvenience. Uh, Pheasant Wood was a precedent. We were always anxious about it, but eventually they did go and engage uh, Tony Pollard and his team to do a non-invasive investigation in 2007. Well, part of that came yeah. directly from the 60 Minutes report, didn't it? Because yeah. I, I saw Ray Martin last week. I was it's chatting with lab. him and we were discussing, yeah. the, just just talking about days gone by, and, and I was discussing with him how what a turning point that was. That, yeah. and, and I knew you back then as well because you did a very good job of telling anyone who had an interest in this what was going on. So I was keeping up with the story from you as well. Scat- and I do recall that it was obstacle, 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 yeah. 60 Minutes report on TV, and then... The doors opened up. That's yeah. as I saw. Was, was it that was that how it worked from your perspective? Was that sixty minutes report a pivotal moment? It was pivotal, and que- the fact that questions were being asked in Parliament, and, and so there was a growing momentum for something to happen at this particular site. You know, Ray and his team they went there and they walked the ground at Pheasant Wood in two thousand and six, uh, and was put on the public agenda then because, uh, as I said, we had to fight a fair bit of uh, 
active discouragement. But um, we put forward that proposition. We believed strongly that that ground before pheasant wood was of interest. And with uh, Ray's story, questions were being asked more broadly and uh, to the point where eventually, uh, after the Dr Lothar document, the Von Brown document, uh, which dated two days after, said dig before pheasant wood. So there was growing evidence we, and... Um, that momentum led to the non-invasive investigation of 2007 by Tony Pollard from Glasgow University. Because we should we should throw in here as well yeah. that just to talk a little bit about archaeological practices. The other yeah. question that came up, and I, in terms of the obstacles that were yeah. put before this discovery, was that okay, even if there had been a burial pit, you know, burial pits there before, there's no chance that graves units after the war would have missed them. You know, that they would have cleared the ground and taken them away. And so even if the bodies were there for a period of a couple of years after the war, they would have been cleared in the 1920s and would now be in the cemeteries. Yeah. And obviously, from an archaeological perspective, it doesn't take much to demonstrate that's not the case. Because if mm. you stick a you know, if you stick a shovel in the ground and when that ground comes up, it's full of bullets and remnants from fighting, that mm. means the ground hasn't been disturbed since yeah. the war. So um, tell me about the, the, the Tony Pollard investigation. Um. He was engaged to use clever technology at the site and uh, he was there. And you mentioned the point about uh, general scatter patterns. Part of what they did, they, they used ground-penetrating radar and sophisticated metal detectors. They allowed a dig to a shovel's depth only. There were more than 700 items of military junk, bullets, shrapnel ball shell casings and the like. But, as well, um, but the general scatter pattern right across the front suggested that anything buried there was still there because the ground had not been disturbed. But they found... Two distinctly Australian items as well. One was a heart-shaped medallion with Anzac written on it. The other one was a, a, a horseshoe medallion, Shire of Alberton AIF, clearly two Australian items. And the only way they could have got there on the bodies of dead Australians because no Australian soldier got that far that night or throughout the entire duration of the war. That ground had never, ever been fought over. And a member of our team of research and advocacy, Tim Mitford, he's the grandnephew of Harry Willis, so it's absolutely astounding that this thing came out of the ground and it belonged to Harry Willis, uh, Tim's great uncle. Incredible. Were you there for that uh, for that dig when they first turned over the soil? I went over in 2007 to be there. Next year will be my 10th visit to uh, Fromell, dwindling the kids' inheritance. But I was there in 2007 uh, with Tony and the team. Uh, not How being... did that feel? How did it feel to be there was... when they said, we're actually going to do something now after all your years yeah. of, of lobbying? I was... It was pretty remarkable uh, to be there with them. They were very thorough with what they did. They weren't allowed to dig, as I said, only to one shovel step only, but uh, I helped out with the uh, with the archaeology and Tony and his team, Peter Barton and, and others, Ian Banks, uh, wonderful, wonderful guys, and um, they did excellent work using clever technology. Uh, it's not romantic at all, archaeology. You could do a hammy doing archaeology, you know, the testing and moving and moving the the, apparatus, the trapeze and different things and um, a lot of trowels te- a, lot a lot of, of trowels, a lot of uh, trowling digs and it's yeah you're right it's 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 very clinical work isn't and it? Mag- magnetometry so uh, but they were very thorough in what they did didn't tell me about the two items they didn't have to of course but we found out about that later but um, their investigation suggested that the ground was of interest they did determine anomalies in the ground and uh, those two items, of course, uh, being Australian items, suggest that the ground was indeed of particular interest than the Dr Lothar Sout document that he found uh, from uh, the Von Brown report, uh, stating dig before pheasant wood for 400. Our circumstantial case was getting extremely strong. So that so, document, that, that yeah. was a document the Germans had written at the time, yep. giving instructions to their troops to bury bodies at yep. pheasant wood. Yeah, that is a smoking gun, yeah. you're right. Separate them by nationality at the Grasshoff, which is a feature before Pheasant Wood, German from British from Australian. Uh, the Germans, they dig eight pits and they fill in five. Three were found in the corner of pit six, but I mean, ostensibly they dug for 400, filled in five, and in the end they recovered 250 soldiers, so very Teutonic. What did the French think about all this when you came there? I mean, I know the French have always been very good supporters of the Australian story at Fromel. What did they at think Fromel, when you said yeah. we're going to dig up the, the ground at Fromel and have a look? No one knew about the proposition. Uh, Patrick Lindsay, another good friend, uh, he found Madame and Monsieur de Massier, the landowners at Pheasant Wood, and he told them the possibility that their ground was a burial site and they were sympathetic, Madame, uh, because she had lost two uncles in the Great War, one of whom was missing. So she allowed the work to proceed. Um, they cannot proceed without official approval. So um, we got to the point 
where it was a properly sanctioned non-invasive investigation. Then the following year they came there to actually dig to confirm yes or no, were they there. No indication that ever been recovered, so we were very confident that they indeed were there. Uh, so um, with local permission, they proceeded. Now you mentioned French officials. We, we have a, oh, I don't want to digress too quickly, but I mean there's a site in Bullcourt where the landowner wants the field recovered, but the local officials will not allow him. And their reason is because there's a strong possibility that they will find human remains. They found six British soldiers there in 2008, and it is pretty well known and confirmed that there are many bodies in that field, but the local officials won't allow it. So I'm very hopeful that the precedent of Pheasant Wood will be tested, but, I mean, you must meet uh, official approvals, and the British Ministry of Defence will not allow investigations. You mentioned that point about, you know, bodies being found by digging a road or putting in a feature, uh, and then Commonwealth War Graves reacting to that. Uh, but they will not initiate or uh, endorse investigations where you can make a strong case. One of the really positive things now is that in Canberra we have a unit called the UWCA, led by Andrew Burney, that uh, will investigate if you can make that strong case. But, I mean, as I said, we have that obligation, I believe, to find and recover our war dead. So at Fromell, we've done test digs, which yeah. have demonstrated the ground hasn't been disturbed. we found Australian items which strongly indicate that your research is correct in its assessment. Um, what was the next process to actually go there? Well, because I remember this time as well. And, again, yeah. you and I talked a lot about this, and I talked with a lot of my other historian mates. Once they determined that there was probably a mass grave there, there was now this other argument that came up. I, I've got to say in all this, Lambus, this is a story of overcoming obstacles because at every step there was just another obstacle that came up. And now, as I recall, if I can recall correctly, the discussion was, okay, well, it seems fairly likely there's bodies there. Now what do we do? Do we retrieve them? And there was an official position that, well, no, let's just stick a memorial up saying there's Australians from the Battle of Fromelli. Tell us about that phase well, of the whole process. The first step was to confirm whether or not it was a burial site. The clever technology of 2007 suggested that it was. Uh, and uh, we remained hopeful that they would go back and investigate the site. There was a report, the John Williams report, which was at best erroneous, uh, and it nearly sank our proposition, but the uh, the clever technology and uh, the items coming out of the ground led to the point where they re-engaged Tony Pollard to go back and actually confirm. I went over again, and Tim was there as well, for the confirming dig one way or the other. Uh, everything suggested that the ground had not been disturbed, but... Um, what did they do during that confirming dig? Okay, what they did is they cleared they cleared the ground, which is used for adjustment by at least by another farmer who cuts the grass there twice a year for for farm animals. Uh, they cleared it, then they removed the topsoil, a meter of topsoil. They got down to the original level, then they dug a sondage or a test pit to go down deeper. And very late on the second night. Uh, Paola Tatara, a top journalist with the age, and uh, she uh, said, I reckon they've found something. The press were there in great numbers, including 60 Minutes were there again. She said, I reckon they've found something. A lot of hushed conversations in the corner of the compound, a lot of photographing taking place, no eye contact as the archaeological team left the site that night. The following morning, uh, they call in the police as part of the process to confirm that what they have found is indeed archaeological and the work can proceed. That's because they want to make sure it's not a domestic yeah. murder, don't they? If they find yeah. a body, they want to make sure it's not so more recent. That's the process. They call in the police. And um, the previous night, the first sign of human remains was an arm coming out of the, the clay minus its hand. So the site was intact. I'd be lying if I was to say I wasn't anxious about all of this. However, with the official announcement, there is some quick relief. But that's overtaken by hope. The hope that these soldiers would be recovered and given their dignity the dignity of individual reburial and perhaps their identity because, after all, we knew at least 196 of them were by name because the Germans told us who they'd buried there. And we had a precedent too because of, if anyone listening has seen my documentary, Lost in Flanders, it tells the story of five Australian bodies that were uncovered the a Zonabek couple of years boys. earlier at yeah. Zonnebeck in, uh, in Belgium. And for the first time, I'll say a collective we use DNA testing yeah. um, to identify three of those yeah. five bodies. So there was a there was a precedent. And I think in some official circles, disappointingly, there was a precedent for now using DNA testing to identify World War One remains. This was obviously on a scale that had never been considered before. Um, yeah. Tell us about that tug of war between simply sticking up a memorial saying there's a, a number of bodies from the Battle of Fromel here and well, the, the struggle to get them removed and reinterred. 
once the ground had been determined, uh, what it, they did effectively was to re- rebury them, to await that political determination as to how they were going to proceed. What were they going to do? Put up a monument saying, believed to be buried here Australians of the 5th Division, British to the 61st Division, killed on the 19th or the 20th of July, or would they recover the site? Uh, as I said, it goes back to the original question, the moral dilemma, do you do this work? Yes, you do. If you have the chance to find and recover your war dead, you do it. There's a lot of tokenism around commemoration and remembrance. So, so um, I believe if you can find your war dead, you've got to do it. So there's more work to be done in Fromel and elsewhere, um, for the British, especially at Fromel, because we believe we might have found where the British are from the Battle of Fromel and also the Battle of Oberst Ridge. But they've declared that uh, they will not investigate. That's their process. But now there's a British lobby group. Hopefully they can do up there what we did down here. Not out of rat baggery, just the belief that if you can find your war dead, you've got to do it. This, as I recall, this was one of the toughest points of the whole investigation was the, the argument about, because it's a, as you say, it's a moral and a philosophical argument. Okay, mm. we've done the practical work. We've discovered that there are a number of Australian bodies, a large number of Australian bodies yeah. buried in this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Field. Yeah. Now it speaks to something much larger. What, yeah. what is our policy as a nation? What, you know, from all sorts of aspects, politically, financially, morally, what do we now do with them? And I remember that was a tug of war that went yeah. on for a long time. And for a long time, it appeared that they were going to lean towards just sticking up a memorial, didn't yeah. it? I was quite surprised when I heard that they were actually going to exhume the bodies. Well, we'd been banned from the site. We were never ever there, Tim and I, to uh, dig or anything like that. We could have been helpful and useful. But, I mean, very late into the dig, we were in- finally invited on site for, for one viewing, and I can assure you it was very grim. Uh, but they were eminently recoverable. And if you don't recover your war dead, it sends a really bad message to your current serving people. We had that obligation to find and recover our war dead. The Americans get it. They actively seek their war dead. Uh, but uh, now, uh, with Zonabeek and with uh, Pheasant Wood, uh, we've had this wonderful result. But eventually, they did go back and... Uh, Oxford Archaeology were given the job of recovery. Uh, there are some of us who contend that all 250 that they recovered are Australian. Three were declared as British through kit. However, one was subsequently identified as Australian through DNA. Uh, Australian officers wore elements of British kit. And that German document said dig for 400. They dug eight pits, filled in five, uh, recovered 250. So there are 150 British missing somewhere nearby, and we think we might have found them. Uh, we have trench maps of of, uh, of the area, uh, which suggests that we may well have done so, and including those of the Battle of Oberst Ridge from the previous year, from the uh, 9th of May. But um, with Fromel, the decision thankfully and mercifully, was made to go back and recover. Like, we knew these soldiers. You know, we've seen their photographs. We've got their names in the back of Robin's book. Names are up on the VC corner on a roll up at uh, the village of Bretano Memorial. There was that clerical error for the 31st Battalion boys who saw their names up there. 40 soldiers of the 31st Battalion killed on the 21st of July. Oh, many, I didn't realise that. And they were some, oh, obviously, they were supposed shit. to be at Fromel. Many, many, many battles of Fromel. So uh, we've had a recent uh, result in as much as logic has prevailed, and I think they will take the 21st of July off the headstones. When we were there in 2010, Harry Willis had the 21st of July on his, on his headstone and uh, four others. Uh, and the officials at the time made the decision to change it back 
to the 19th and the 20th, thankfully. But they made the same mistake a couple of years later with Woodman. But now it has been determined and conceded that uh, none were killed on the 21st. If you were killed on the 21st of July, you're back in no man's land doing the work of recovery. So just just so I understand yeah. this, this point, so what you're saying is that through a clerical error, which occurred a lot during the, the Great War, yeah. um, all the names of the missing from, from L are recorded or supposed to be recorded at VC Corner Cemetery. And the names of Australians killed in France in other battles throughout the Mm. war are recorded on the Villas Bretonneau Memorial. And you're saying there was a group of 31st Battalion men recorded at Villas Bretonneau who'd been killed at Fromel and also, in addition, listed as killed a day after the battle ended. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So the nature of of record keeping in the First World War. Well, thankfully, logic has prevailed and uh, their headstones will be changed to the. uh, these are the headstones 20th, at the new cemetery. At the new cemetery. And also behind our lines, they're buried with the 21st of July on their headstone. So I think Commonwealth War Graves and UWCA will uh, alter that, get the right date. You mentioned that you were present when yeah. they opened up one of the pits, obviously without trying to sensationalise it. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? What did you see and, and how did that affect you emotionally after all the work you'd done into these boys? Uh, it was a lunchtime and... Uh, I was called on site for the viewing and Tony Pollard said, shut down pit number four. He didn't want me to see pit four because it was particularly grim, I assume. Tim got to see pits four and five later. But uh, they were skeletal remains. Contigu- like the, as they had been placed or thrown in, in pits one, two and three, they had been laid down a layer of bodies, earth and lime, another layer of bodies, earth and lime. But by pits four and five, they had to carry these bodies from the, the light rail to the furthest point of the diggings. And by then, they were being thrown in. Uh, but uh, I, I felt like I knew these men. I'd done the research and I'd seen their photographs, read the letters from their mothers and fathers. So I was OK with viewing um, those pits, but uh, con- consolidated the fact that uh, we had to recover this site, you know, some people said, leave them alone, leave them at rest, they are at peace with their mates. No, they were, they were never ever at peace. And if we could do better, we had to do better. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's a key point. Yeah. That the, the, if, if someone's buried in a cemetery and a consecrated ground yeah. and uh, you know, service is held, however brief it would have been during the First World War, that's one thing. But Aussies thrown into a pit on top of each other, yeah. covered in lime, and then filled in without even being marked is not the respected burial that we would want for our war dead, is it? True enough. And clearly, and as I said, it sends a bad message to your current serving people. If you can find your war dead, you should do it. So what was next? They've, they they well, agreed that they would recover the bodies and they agreed uh, to DNA test them, which again was yeah. another another big argument, whether they would DNA test. So thankfully the decision was made to go back and actually recover the site, Oxford Archaeology. But first on Tony Pollard and his team from Guard, Ian Banks, Tony and his team, they did wonderful, remarkable work. Not just a, an act of archaeology, but uh, it was uh, a strong link with what they did. And uh, Gail McKinnon, the anthropologist, they did remarkable work. Uh, as did you know the Oxford team, once they got the tender to do that recovery work, uh, it gets very close and personal. But uh, they recovered the site, 250 soldiers from those pits, uh, and then the call had gone out right across Australia. If you had a soldier lost at the Battle of Rommel, come forward, offer us your family tree, nominated DNA given, we will try and match your soldier to the DNA. Yeah, because this is the important thing, and I learned a lot about DNA during the whole Lost in Flanders um, process of making that documentary about the five bodies in Belgium, is that DNA is pointless unless they have a, a living relative to match it to, mm. isn't it? That, that's the case, isn't it? So they needed... It's why... People ask me this all the time. Uh, last year, they, they uncovered a few bodies at Passchendaele and just buried them as unknowns without even DNA. I'm sure they took DNA samples, but but they buried them without an identification. And people ask why that is. We need strong documentary evidence to give us a good indication of who these people might be, don't we, in order to then narrow down living family members and to match DNA. You can't go and test everyone in Australia in the hope that you find a missing soldier. From the first world. It is a very clever technology and, and science. And um, if the soldier had a brother... The mitochondrial line is very strong, but you also need the, the male line as well. And our friend Royce Atkinson, he has a soldier identified at, uh, at Pheasant Wood. Uh, he and his team, the Fromel Association of Australia, have done excellent work finding DNA providers across Australia and around the world. But they need a, a mitochondrial 
uh, link and uh, oh, why, I don't know enough about the science the, of it all. But yeah, the, the what, what we discovered continue. during Lost in Flanders is yeah. that the strongest DNA you can take is the one through the female yeah. line, and that gets very difficult trying to match to modern times because in Western society, when women marry, they take on their husband's name. So the, the, the name becomes very male-dominated. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to trace through the female line of a family, especially when you're going back several generations. So that was always the complication that we found as well in Flanders was mm-hmm. that the, the, the – I can't remember what the male DNA is called. It's the easier, chromosome to, it's easier sure. to trace, yeah. uh, but um, – Harder to get. Harder to get, that's right. It's it's the female line. And so that that's the always the diff you need to find someone whose great aunt remembered that yeah. they had someone missing in Fromel, et cetera, et cetera. I think so it was great work that was done to do this at Fromel, wasn't it? If uh the soldier had a sister who had a daughter, who had a daughter, who had a daughter, they carry the mitochondrial line. But after the first generation the Y one drops away, I think. So the timing was such that there were people you know, still alive who carried the Essential DNA to make that match, but uh, with the recoveries, you know, they found remarkable artifacts in those pits. Um, many poignant finds uh, in the waterproof section of a gas mask, a train ticket returned second class, free out of the Perth, clearly placed there by that soldier as a good luck charm, a talisman, a reminder of home. So uh, is that what, a return yeah, ticket, ticket that yeah. obviously the second part of that ticket was never used. Yeah. Incredible. Um, a medallion in the shape of a boomerang with "Return to Me" written on it. Three soldiers with their discs still on. Um, Bibles with underlined sections through them. One soldier had engraved his uh, surname into his dental plate. So they're identifying soldiers using a variety of methods, a watch with a name on it. So they're identifying soldiers to the point where at the dedication of the new cemetery on July 19, 2010, 96 Australian soldiers had been identified at that stage. That figure is now 166 so identifying one is wonderful, but 166 is sensational. It's incredible. Uh, 166 yeah. of 250 yeah. is a remarkable... Well, well, that's the thing now, is that they decided that they would, for the first time since the 1950s, they mm-hmm. would build a new, a brand new Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery yeah. uh, called the, the Cemetery of Pheasant Wood. Military uh, cemetery. cemetery, yeah. And they would reinter those bodies there. Um, that was a, I was there. I was fortunate to be there in 2010. That was a special day. It was hot. <laughs> Bloody hot. It was, it was remarkably hot. What a special hot. day. Yeah. I mean, what did that mean for you, Lambus? I mean, I, I know this is these are probably inane questions to say what did it mean for you, but after all of this work, you know, a decade or more's work, to stand in the new cemetery and see 250 headstones, of which nearly half had been identified, just how, how did you feel that day? It was wonderful to be there, but I stress from the outset that it was a team effort that got us there, uh, research and advocacy by a lot of people. But uh, to be there, I was there with my daughter and Suzanne, my wife, and uh, to be there for that particular service, to see the headstones, to see the service. Uh, maybe I'm a bit dim, uh, but I mean, maybe the the magnitude of all of this hasn't sunk in. I'm not so, I don't know, but I mean, to be there was remarkable and for me the culmination in the eight-year process to that point was when the families got to go in to greet their soldiers. Uh, Tim photographed with uh, Harry Willis and uh, so also the Governor-General was there and she got to greet the families and I've met families and I think think some of it sinks in when you meet the families because some of... some have sneered at the at the term closure. I think it's very important. Some have suggested, among them from the expert panel, uh, that it's sufficient to have a name carved in stone, cast in bronze, painted onto a board, um, that uh, this process has been a waste of time and money. I don't see it like that, uh, nor do the families of those. But there is a collective ownership of that ground. You've been in there, you've walked it many times. There is that collective ownership. It is now blessed and consecrated ground. And um, I think it's important that we continue this work. And the wonderful, the wonderful village of Framel, they now have a custodial role. We have many friends in Framel and they will love and care for the soldiers of Pheasant Wood. And our very good friend, Pierre Sellier, has instigated uh, a program where the uh, the school children of, of Ecole de Cobbers have adopted a headstone. So... Uh, they uh, will tend the grave. They 
struck up a, a dialogue with the family's permission, uh, with the, the families back in Australia. So they've taken away the anonymity of the stone for those who haven't been identified. Uh, they now have this ongoing process. So commemoration and remembrance is assured and in youthful hands in Framel and there will be visitation and uh, it will be ongoing and this work will be ongoing. It's Framel now, there's always been a very strong link with Australia, but Framel now, thanks to this work, is now absolutely iconic. And when I talk to people in general about visiting the Western Front, the two things they generally say are, I want to, I want to go to the spot where Monash won the war, and we can, that would be a subject for a separate podcast, yeah. with the, the validity of that statement, and I want to go to Framel, where the yeah. soldiers were discovered. And, and you played a, you know, you were instrumental in that role. I mean, how do you feel, you were awarded with the Order of Australia, and a lot of Australian people are incredibly grateful for the work that you did. How do you carry that burden of gratitude of the nation? Uh, as I said from the outset, this from Mel Momentum is due to Robin Caulfield. He began this. He planted that flag in his book, the Bowden flag. I picked it up and with good help, we carried that flag forward. It's been a, a remarkable and a wonderful result. Um, it is ongoing, research and advocacy, inframel and elsewhere. But I mean, uh, I was awarded the AM in 2009. Uh, that's a, a personal recognition. But, and uh, I only wear it once a year on the 19th of July at our Framel services down at the shrine there. But um, it's been a remarkable journey. And uh, as I said, I'm maybe too dim and too... Uh, oh, to be sensitive about all of this, but you know, we persisted. We had a, we had a proposition. We persisted with the proposition in the face of uh, a lot of active discouragement, and pursued it to the result that we have now. And it's it's been a wonderful result. And families do have a point of visitation, but as I said, it's not blood specific. People will make their pilgrimage to from and elsewhere. With the passing of centenary, I don't see it diminishing in any way. People will continue. Uh, their visits and their pilgrimages to the Western Front, France, Belgium, to Gallipoli. Um, and that's an open invitation. Like, I've done a lot of work in schools, and uh, there is an open invitation to commemoration and remembrance, and it will be assured. In the specific work of uh, finding missing, the UWCA have a mandate now to uh, listen to a case, if you make a strong enough case, and we will go and look. Hopefully our British friends will come around to it and our French local officials won't be obstinate to the point where they won't allow investigation, but there's a whole lot more work to be done, um, especially at Bullcore. Of all the places I've been to in France, I don't know about you, but, I mean, it's, uh, it's the, the ground that fills me with the most dread. Uh, first Battle of Bullcore, second Bullcore, there are many, many bodies there and we believe we've located anomalies and UWCA are considering that work as they are our work at Krithia. I'm more confident about the Krithia ground than I was for uh, the Pheasant Wood. So Krithia is the, the battle from May 1915 in Gallipoli, yeah, uh, the, the, really the, un, the unknown Anzac battle of Gallipoli down in the Helles sector. Yeah, we, we were only there for that one night uh, and again an absolute disaster, 243 missing, but uh, research, uh, documentation, geography and logic indicate the ground. Uh, before and in, uh, behind Tommy's Trench near the creek. And there are burials there, Australian burials, but uh, many British, Indian as well, French. We should make this point. You mentioned the word logic, and yeah. it's it, we should understand that this was common practice during the First World War, that it's in a very specific set of circumstances, if you had an enemy attacking a trench system, in this case the enemy in quote marks was the, were the Australians from mm. the German perspective, if you had enemy troops occupying a trench system and then being repulsed or dying in large numbers in ground that was then not held by them mm -hmm. during that attack, once the opposition came back in, they would have to do something with the bodies. And yeah. the standard thing they would do is take great care with their own burials. And we did it as well. If we yeah. had a lot of Germans to bury, dig a big hole and throw them in. Um, so it's, 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 although it's unique from L in terms of the outcome, it was mm -hmm. a fairly standard practice. And we can now... As you say, those battles you've mentioned, Bulacore, Krithia, if we go back to any large Australian action where they advanced a long way, got into the enemy lines, tussled hand-to-hand -hand with the Germans mm -hmm. and were then repulsed at that point, 
um, it's highly likely that there would have been um, mass burials yeah. of, the, of, the, of the bodies at that point. And yeah. so that's what you're finding with Bulacor and Krithia. Yeah. You believe you've got more mass graves. Yeah. In Bulacor, <coughs> especially, and uh, with the Battle of Krithia, in the nights after the battle, we went out and brought our own back and we buried them. And again, no record of recovery from this particular site. So uh, very confident about the Krithia ground and hopeful that our Turkish friends will allow an investigation, but we'll see about that. How's, um, the, how's the official response been this time around? Are they like, oh, not bloody Lambus again? Have we done enough? Uh, we persist, we persist. And um, as I said, we are very hopeful now with this new group, the UWCA, that they will investigate particular sites and propositions. And uh, hopefully, as I said, the precedent of Pheasant Wood will be tested, as I believe it should. A false economy around commemoration and remembrance. And uh, if we had the chance to find our war dead, we should do it. What does this all mean? What was the significance of Pheasant Wood? I mean, removing bones and putting them in a new spot a few hundred metres down the road, that's the minor part of it. What does it mean for you and why was it important that we did this? Well, as I said, I believe we have that moral obligation to find and recover our war dead. Uh, We'd have to do it because if they can be found... They need to be recovered. And um, as I said, our American friends, they do it actively. And um, if you find your war dead, you should recover them. They can't be, as I said, that logistical inconvenience, financial inconvenience. And if you don't, it sends that bad message to your current serving people. You find your war dead. But uh, as I said, with Fromel, with Pheasant Wood, we've had this wonderful result. And uh, I'm hopeful. Well, it's just... There's a group of people out there, family members. I get contacted regularly by people. I uh, want to know if there's any chance for their particular soldier and we have ongoing work with that and we believe we have found more soldiers scattered across the Western Front and UWCA are considering. We might have a very strong result out of uh, Village Bretonneau uh, in September. We believe we've found some soldiers in Village Bret. And, uh, and in other places. So um, we remain hopeful that this precedent will be tested. You find and you recover your war dead. You brought with you today a statuette oh, of, yeah. of quite a moving statuette. It's remarkable. As it, I said, my good friend Tim Whiffett is very heavy, careful. I mean, it is very heavy. Oh, yeah. it certainly is. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, just to describe it, I'll put yeah. a photo up on the Facebook page, but it's a, an older lady... Is that a photograph she's clutching? She's clutching a photograph of her soldier. She's in son. a long winter coat. Um, she, it's, it's all about mourning and she's. it, it says a lot about grief and yeah. sadness and loss. So what, tell us about this statue. Yeah. Uh, Tim Whitford, he found a letter in the National Archives written by Mrs Alice Goulding uh, and uh, Peter Collette, the sculptor of Cobbers, has made this statue of the grieving mother. It is from El generated from El specific but at once... It is an image which is centuries and millennia old, the grieving mother. And uh, Gary Snowden and his team uh, in Ballarat, they've found a home for the statue and she's uh, to the uh, very close to the Arch of Victory before the 22-kilometre-long Avenue of Honour. Um, so, uh, as I said, people will visit the grieving mother, lay flowers at her feet, Anzac Day, Remembrance Day, Mother's Day. It's a wonderful statue. Mrs. Goulding, she passed away in 1922, never ever knowing what happened to her son. He was on the working list of 196, known to be buried at Pheasant Wood. And uh, she passed away in 1922 on the 19th of July, the anniversary of the battle. Many, many strange coincidences and links in this entire process. But she never knew what happened to her son. But um, Was he one of the ones identified? Five years ago they found DNA for him in outback Queensland somewhere, I believe. And now Goulding has a marked headstone. Wonderful. So it's a remarkable letter and through that process we now have this remarkable statue and we thank Ballarat for giving her a home. It reminds me of the uh, the statue I saw in Geraldton in Western Australia yeah. at the Sydney Memorial which shows a mother looking out to sea, you know, in the yeah. direction of the lost ship. And I think for me these are some of the most evocative statues that we do. Mm-hmm. It, it takes courage to make images like this because yeah. the the image of the brave warrior that we typically see on war memorials 
is what's expected. It's 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 not difficult to cast your heroes in bronze. But this idea of confronting the grief of the family members that was left behind, I think it's probably a more yeah. modern thing that you don't see too many of those um, at the time of the war. Perhaps the exception might be things like the Vimy Ridge Memorial, the Canadian Memorial, yeah. has a lot of grieving uh, images on it. Um, but I think it's wonderful. I think it's an important element of commemoration that we talk about the aftermath of these I big think battles. So. And that's what this statue does wonderfully. Oh, it's a remarkable statue. There was the, the Sydney mother, the Fromel mother, who every night for the rest of her life would walk up the hill to the top of the street to watch and wait for her Fromel son to come home. You know, uh, plates set at the table, the dinner table, lamps being lit in windows uh, to guide their son home, the sons that would never come home. But uh, as I said, it's very important. And not enough is discussed about the coming home. Maybe we're too stoic with all of that because uh, we've learnt that there are more than 10,000 Australian soldiers in unmarked graves across the country. Those damaged men, the men who came back from the war, brought the war back with them, went into Mont Park, Callan Park, were in there for uh, five months, five years, died in there, were buried in pauper graves, unmarked. Now, with a properly sanctioned paper chase, maybe we can find these soldiers and restore their dignity. So there's ongoing work down in Tasmania. There's a group called the, the Headstone Project, which is now going national. And Andrea Gerard and her team have done excellent work. At Cornelium Bay, they found more than 300 unmarked graves. But then now all have a headstone. A remarkable template, a remarkable process. But maybe uh, we can find our soldiers and restore their dignity and their identity. Lambus, it's wonderful work. I, I think everyone listening to this would just agree wholeheartedly that it's it's incredible the work that you've done and that lots of people are doing. And I agree with you. I think we owe it to these men to to look for them if they're missing. And you said the word tokenism. I, I think I think we owe them more than simply turning up one day a year on Anzac Day and waving the flag. Mm. I think we do owe it to them. And the work you've done here is absolutely remarkable. And I, I'm I feel very honoured that I've been able to. Uh, to, to follow it over the years because it's just a, a wonderful example of passion and humanity and empathy um, playing out on the ground of the First World War. So it's been wonderful. Thank you for coming and discussing it with us. And we, I'm sure we all look forward to, uh, to the next chapter of the Lambus and Glazer story. Thank you, Matt. And as I said from the outset, a good team effort with a wonderful result and perhaps the precedent will be tested elsewhere and it should. Thank you, Matt. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.